Hi, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH, and I will be summarizing the May 21st, 2021 CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report today. Let's dive in. In Article 1, we're talking about outbreaks in treated recreational water in the United States. And recreational water is referring to things like pools, hot tubs, water playgrounds, that sort of thing. So outbreaks in treated recreational water can be caused by pathogens or chemicals. And from the study period of 2015 through 2019, public health officials in 36 states voluntarily reported 208 outbreaks associated with treated recreational water. The majority of these outbreaks, 96% of them to be exact, were associated with public pools, hot tubs, or water playgrounds. And these outbreaks resulted in at least 3,646 cases of illness, 286 hospitalizations, and 13 deaths. So the majority, 75%, of these outbreaks were confirmed to be from one of two infectious agents. And these two agents are cryptosporidium, which causes a gastrointestinal illness called cryptosporidiosis, And the other agent is Legionella, which causes Legionnaire's disease, a form of severe pneumonia, and it also causes the milder Pontiac fever. So all 13 deaths in these outbreaks from treated recreational water were attributed to Legionnaire's disease. Most of these 208 outbreaks fell under two scenarios. Most outbreaks were either caused by cryptosporidium associated with pools having occurred between June and August, or they were caused by Legionella and associated with hot tubs in hotels, motels, lodges, inns, or resorts. The thing is, outbreaks caused by cryptosporidium can occur even if the pool or water playground is properly treated. So public health professionals need to be taking bigger preventative steps to reduce infectious outbreaks in water. And the CDC actually has this manual called the Model Aquatic Health Code, the MAHC, that should serve as a guidebook for state and local public health departments and agencies to ensure aquatic safety is being maximized. And as far as the Legionella outbreaks and their relative deadliness seen in this study, these indicate that hot tub operation needs improvement. And this points to the need to take steps as outlined again in the CDC's MAHC. And they specifically have a Legionella control toolkit and a water management program toolkit. So taking these steps and following the MAHC would decrease the incidence of Legionella outbreaks associated with public hot tubs. And a link to the MAHC will be included in the show notes. In Article 2, we are talking about the CDC's recommendations for a self-administered birth control shot. So many of us who've been on birth control have heard of the Depo-Provera shot which is a birth control shot that you get every three months administered by a physician. And so this article talks about basically Depo-Provera, but in this case, the the actual name of the shot is Cyanopress, but it's the same type of birth control, one shot every three months. So in 2019, the World Health Organization recommended that Cyanopress be offered so that it can be self-administered, meaning that you or I as the patient could inject ourselves with our own birth control every three months. 
just for the record, I'm saying Sayana because that is what the World Health Organization specifically referred to in its recommendation. But in this report, the researchers refer to this type of drug as subcutaneous depot medroxyprogesterone acetate. Like I said, I'm just going to be referring to it as Sayana because that's what the World Health Organization was referring to in its recommendation. And the CDC adopted this recommendation in 2021, justified by moderate certainty evidence that self-administered Sayana is safe and effective and has higher continuation rates compared with provider-administered Sayana, meaning people will be more likely to keep up with their birth control if they can do it themselves, as opposed to going to a provider every three months. The new CDC recommendation states that self-administered Sayana should be made available in addition to the already existing provider-administered Sayana. And the reason that they recommend that Sayana should be available as a self-administered form of birth control is for the reasons that I mentioned before, because there's a higher likelihood of continuation. The CDC recommendation still states, though, that provider-administered Sayana should remain available. This next article looked at the characteristics of COVID-19 cases at childcare facilities and looked at facility adherence to COVID-19 guidance and recommendations. So this study specifically focused on the Washington, D.C. area. And researchers looked at 316 COVID-19 cases across 112 licensed childcare facilities. The risk factors for a COVID outbreak at these childcare facilities were first... If the facility had been operating for under three years, and maybe that's because of a lack of resources, which made it difficult to adjust to COVID-19 prevention protocols. Secondly, if symptomatic people got tested more than three days after their symptom onset, that was a risk factor for a COVID outbreak. And thirdly, if people with asymptomatic COVID were at the facility, that was the third risk factor for COVID outbreaks at these childcare facilities. As had been observed in other studies, the rise in COVID-19 cases and outbreaks among these facilities did correlate with the level of community spread. But unlike community transmission, in these childcare facilities, researchers identified five close contacts per COVID case, compared to 1.2 contacts per case, as reported in a study on community-level contact tracing during a similar period. So this does suggest higher transmission of COVID at these childcare facilities, but it might not be exclusive to these facilities. It might be because it's a different variant of COVID. We don't know. Lastly, approximately 20% of cases in this study occurred in asymptomatic people, and most asymptomatic cases were in children. This is similar to findings from a Wisconsin report on COVID outbreaks in schools. And so really, this study just underscores the importance of implementing a combination of COVID-19 prevention strategies, including vaccination, masking, physical distancing, cohorting, screening, quarantining close contacts, and case reporting to prevent COVID outbreaks in congregate settings like childcare facilities, schools, etc. Article 4. Pfizer in adolescents ages 12 through 15. What's up with that? And what do we know? So on May 10th of 2021, the FDA expanded emergency use authorization for the Pfizer COVID vaccination to include 12 through 15 year olds. Then on May 12th, after a systematic review of all of the available data, 
the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices made an interim recommendation for the actual use of the vaccine in 12 to 15-year-olds in order to prevent COVID. So the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices reviewed this data by performing a grade assessment where they analyzed and weighed the harms versus benefits of COVID vaccination in 12 to 15-year-olds. They also reviewed Pfizer's 2,200-person double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial of 12 to 15-year-olds. And in the review, they found that the clinical efficacy of the vaccine in this population of 12 to 15-year-olds was 100%. Of course, there is a margin, right? It, it, it could be closer to 80, you know, it could be 70-something, but in their study, the number that they found was 100 They also found that the number of serious adverse events between the placebo and treatment groups was not statistically different, which is a really good sign. So the public health implication here is that adolescents represent a growing proportion of new COVID-19 cases reported to the CDC, and they have been shown to contribute to household transmission of COVID. So expanding the Pfizer vaccine to this age group can help reduce COVID transmission and symptomatic COVID in this age group and in surrounding communities. Article 5, Interim Estimates of Vaccine Effectiveness in Healthcare Workers. We're specifically looking at Pfizer and Moderna here. How are these vaccines working in the real world, particularly in the high-exposure world of healthcare? So this study was conducted across 33 sites in 25 states, and healthcare personnel with potential direct or indirect COVID-19 exposure were eligible for enrollment. Of the healthcare personnel who enrolled in this study, 75% worked at acute care hospitals, 25% worked in outpatient or specialty clinics, and less than 1% worked in long-term care facilities and urgent care clinics. The sample was geographically diverse. However, racial and ethnic minority groups that may have had higher community exposure were underrepresented in this sample, so the findings might not be generalizable to the total U.S. population. As far as results go, in the study, the researchers found that single doses of Pfizer or Moderna were 82% effective against symptomatic COVID, and two doses of a vaccine were 94% effective. And this is among, again, this healthcare personnel sample. So these numbers are consistent with findings from previous cohort and observational studies and clinical trials. The implication, vaccines are effective, get vaccinated. Final article, disparities in COVID-19 vaccinations between urban and rural counties in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. So almost one-fifth of the U.S. population lives in rural counties. And in September of 2020, COVID incidence in rural counties was greater than COVID incidence in urban counties. Residents of rural counties are already at risk of COVID-related health disparities. Rural communities often have a higher proportion of residents who have other health conditions, called comorbidities. They also have a higher proportion of residents who don't have health insurance, who are older than 65, and who have limited access to healthcare facilities with intensive care units. So, are there disparities in COVID vaccinations between urban and rural counties? To answer this, the CDC analyzed county-level vaccine data for adults over 18 years old who had received at least one dose of Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J between mid-December of 2020 and mid-April of 2021. The researchers found that vaccination coverage was lower in rural counties at 39% coverage 
compared to urban counties at 46%. And this disparity held true even when they looked at data by each age group and gender. The one area where vaccination coverage varied was when data was broken down by a jurisdiction. So in 38 jurisdictions, coverage was lower in rural counties, but in five jurisdictions, coverage was higher in rural counties. So still the majority of jurisdictions had this disparity where rural counties had lower vaccination coverage. Now, vaccination coverage by race and ethnicity was not calculated because this information was missing in 40% of the data that was collected. The researchers did also assess for disparities related to traveling for a vaccine and did find that a larger proportion of rural county residents had to travel to a non-adjacent county in order to receive a vaccination compared to rural residents. So the public health implication here, like many of these studies on vaccination disparities, is public health professionals should be heeding this data and ensuring that there are strategies in place to make sure that people in rural counties get equal access to the vaccine. And that is it for this week's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap. Please comment, subscribe, and like the podcast along with following our Instagram at MMW Recap. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week.